in every Tuesday to the Learning with Lowell podcast with me, your host, Lowell, to hear world-class scientists, startup founders, CEOs, and authors, people who you wouldn't normally hear about but are making huge waves all the same. You'll understand them and their work by hearing their passion, laughter, advice, and hearing them, the experts, break down what they're working on so that you can learn push the boundaries of your knowledge and understanding. Three quick ways to show your support and get unique, exclusive, and fun content is by checking out learningwithlowell.com website, our Patreon page. Even if it's just a buck, it keeps this advertisement free and subscribing. Today, we are joined with Riley. He's a founder and principal at Upheaval Investments and Byron Marsh Capital. He, he also previously worked as a CEO of RF School Tech. This is all based out in Chicago. And the big thing here is he is 20 years old and he had his first investment when he was 13 years old and so this has only been seven years and the first investment went on to be a multi-billion dollar exit so on this episode we get into vc world what's it like to be a wonderkin and how we can kind of learn from his experiences it's really interesting to take outliers like riley and see what's happened differently to them and seeing how we can replicate it and i think that's one of the things we get into this episode we also get a great sense of who he is who he likes to help and if you're a startup or or anything like that either in the chicago land area or wanting to talk to someone who passionately wants to help startups send an email to riley the information will be in the show notes so let's get into this you were telling me that you started like you were basically you you got money or you saved up money when you were like 13 years old and you were like hey I don't want a truck or whatever the heck 13-year-olds buy with their money. I want to invest in something. So wh- like, walk me through like why you decided to do that. Like, instead of, At an age where most people don't think long-term, you were thinking long-term. You were thinking, let's try something different. Let's try something new. So I'm just curious, like, why did you make that decision? Like, If you remember, I mean, because it was all of seven years ago. So I've always had an interest in in the investing space. Uh, my, I have family members who are investors and um, I've always been excited to foster the growth of an exciting company. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, when I was 13, uh, I had my bar mitzvah um, and that gave me a nice little income of something like five grand. Um, and the result of that was I needed to do something with it. And instead of buying something, which I, as you mentioned, felt like was a very short-term goal. Um, I looked around at other opportunities and decided that I could either invest it in the public market or invest it in a private company. At the time, there was a number of private companies that my family was investing in that I felt like were particularly exciting. So I basically requested the opportunity to look at our portfolio, look at other tangential companies and along with our family office, take my capital and uh, invest it alongside them. Dove in, I did extensive research. By that time, I had had other interests, including being a web developer. So I felt like I could understand the technical sides of these companies, maybe even more in depth than some of the analysts on our team. Ultimately, I decided on a single company instead of the diverse portfolio that many would recommend. And that company ended up being Chris Gladwin's distributed data database company uh, called Cleversafe, which sold to IBM for a billion three about four years later. I always hear people like a company gets acquired and it's always assumed that the people took the like sometimes an acquisition company will just like convert the stock into new stock into that company as well. A little bit of both. And so I'm, I'm curious, did you just like take the money and then invest in other things or did you convert it to be a part of that company as well? Because for the most part, I always hear people just like taking the, the cash. 
Deal structures vary quite a bit. In this case, I'm entirely positive what I'm, what I'm allowed to disclose, but essentially it was it was to be distributed over a period of a few years. So there's an initial cash, bulk cash flow, um, which you get and you're able to distribute. And then over the course of a few years, you get the remaining 50% or so. And what do you do with that? Yeah, typically you reinvest it. In Illinois and as well as a couple other states, there are tax credits that are associated with investing in long-term technology companies. And those can be very beneficial if you're willing to re-roll your, your assets into new new technology funds or companies. So we ch- tried to do that as much as we could. Just you, The requirement is that you use the capital within uh, 12 or 18 months. Is there like a tax purpose for a delayed structure of releasing of the buyout? You know, you said like a, a, an amount in the beginning and then like and a lot of times it'll be like structured throughout the years. So is that just for taxes or is it, why do people do that? No, it's actually not primarily for taxes. Possible there are tax benefits to it, but I'm actually not sure. No, the primary purpose is in some cases it's because of a aqua hire, which is essentially where you're acquiring a company because you're interested in the, the human talent, where you want to keep people on board um, for a certain amount of time. In other cases, it is a it's essentially a warrant on the ability to on the success of the company, where you might where potentially the company the acquiring company only buys a certain portion of the company up front and then buys a the remaining portion later on at a lower valuation than is at book at the time. Uh, it depends, but there there are a number of benefits of delaying the full capital release. Okay. And like as you can kind of tell, like this is this is not a subject I normally get to delve in on. So I'm very curious to learn more about this. The so like in Illinois, you said there's credits for reinvesting. Is it significant, or is it like this in the sense uh, Tesla? I think that got like maybe one percent benefit of building their factory in in Nevada, which it doesn't really add up. I mean, it adds up to a little bit, but is it is it substan- is it substantive, or is it the the analogy of the Tesla factory? And when it comes to those types of credits. The sort of tax credits that Tesla gets at one per, at one percent are are still significant. I mean, because when you're a many hundred billion dollar company, a one percent tax credit is actually significant in a absolute value perspective. And for these tax credits, which are typically applied to smaller investments, they are again substantial. The value, the absolute value to them may be relatively less, but they are still, in some cases, twenty percent discounts on on your investment. So like if you were to buy like, I don't know, to, to make it like simplify it, if you were to buy like a water bottle and it's like a dollar, with the tax credit, it would cost you like 80 cents? Yes, if the water bottle was a technology company. <laughs> yes, yes. So from my understanding, to like go back to the original, like you're able to invest alongside your the your relative's fund. I think most people, if like if I had $5,000, I couldn't go out and invest because I think there's like structures within the government to stop that. So if... If anyone was, hey, I want to do something similar to you, how would they do it? Would they just approach a similar VC and be like, they say, hey, my son got a bar mitzvah. He's very smart, wants to be very forward thinking. Is there any way that they, he want he found a company and they so happen to be investing in it? Can we do a deal alongside? Like, how would, how would anyone else do what you're doing without the type of family connections that you had? So what you're referring to is the uh, accredited investor accommodation. And that is essentially a limitation on either the entity or the uh, natural person's net worth and or, or income in, in their ability to do private investments. The purpose stated is essentially to make sure that you know what you're doing with the assumption that if you have more capital, you're able to lose it safely 
or you are better at knowing what to do with it. I, I personally think that this is kind of absurd, but nonetheless, it exists. So if you are an average individual who, who doesn't have a direct connection to an investment fund who can do private equity, there is a number of public sources such as crowdfunding sites, SeedFunder, AngelList, I believe both have conglomerates of entities that allow you as a unaccredited investor to invest in private companies through their funds, where they basically will invest in select companies on the behalf of, again, a, a number of, in, of non-accredited individuals. Sometimes as an investor in one of these funds, you get to have a select, you get to have a influence in the selection of underlying companies, and sometimes you just trust the fund manager. But this is definitely a good way to start. Um, recently been very popular as an option for accredited and non-accredited alike. Is it possible for non-accredited investors to create a mini syndicate and find one person such as yourself to just be the principal, that the, the lead investor, and then work underneath you? I guess it would be the same thing as like finding a conglomerate. I'm just curious if on an individual basis, instead of finding a website thing, someone goes and finds like an angel investor and then finds like 10 other friends. I know, I think they can do some. I'm familiar with real estate and I think people can do it in there. So I'm just curious on the tech side and investing in the VC world, if a similar structure of creating a syndicate of non, non-accredited investors could like loophole it that way. My understanding is that you would still you need to meet the, I believe it's a $5 million minimum requirement for entities. So you would need to get a number of non-accredited investors together to do this. And yes, you could hire a, a fund manager to, to manage this on your behalf. They would typically take a management fee of a couple percent as well as a carried interest of 10 or 20% would not be surprising to me for their services. But it, 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 it could be an option if you uh, are passionate enough about uh, starting a syndicate. After you made the investment when you were 13, it, you know, you're 20 now. What have, you, what have you been doing for the last seven years? You know, any more billion dollar companies you've invested in or any other? I know you, you, you graduated high school. I know that much. Yeah. So the the nature of seed investing, and I do some public equities as well, but primarily venture at this point, is they take 10 to 12 years to essentially pay off. And that's through an IPO or some other exit. So, so far, no, not yet. But I've invested in, I have a portfolio of another, a number of companies that certainly could, and I hope do, get to this, will get to the stage where they can be worth a number of billion dollars and exit profitably. Do you use the early Weiss, like Y Combinator kind of had like a split in how they do uh, their acquisition of startups. And originally they were, I feel like a little bit more selective, like they wouldn't have like these really large batches. But now it seems that they're subscribing more to the one in 10 pays for everything uh, scenario where I think in the beginning they were looking kind of for like unicorns. I think just from the outside's point of view, maybe I'm, I'm thinking about it wrongly, but if well, first of all, is that true? Would you think that that's a fair assessment? Like that, the, like under, I think it was like a split when they changed presidents where like the whole strategy now is to be a bit more like encompassing. If, if anything, it's like every, maybe like one per batch really like pays for the batch and their batches are, I think like 30 people. There's a couple interesting points to make on this. Maybe we should start with talking a little bit more broadly and just pointing out how about 50% of VCs, I'm talking about VCs with over 250 million with a vast under management, return less than one times their money. And that's 
on over the whole fund duration of 10 plus years. That is not an investable asset for most LPs, especially if you're comparing that to, you know, an S&P 500 weighted balance. So there's a couple of fund general fund approaches that major VCs can take. They can take a we are going to invest in let's say 25 companies at a lar- at a with a large commitment and carry them through multiple funding rounds. This is incredibly successful as a strategy if you're actually that good at picking innovative companies. The alternative strategy, which, as you pointed out, Y Combinator has recently been adopting, um, actually, frankly, I feel like they've always adopted, was the a, a hybrid of the spray and pray approach. We are going to invest in a number of companies with the understanding that the truth is there's a lot of luck involved and we just don't quite know which ones are going to work out. But what we're going to do is we're going to invest in a lot of companies and help them all out as much as we absolutely can to put them in the best position to succeed. This ultimately amounts to less, a a lot of failures, but it only really takes one company, as you pointed out, to make the fund. If you can invest early into a single multi-billion dollar company, that'll likely make your fund, even if you're only owning 1% to 3% of them. Even if, and again, even if you're a larger fund. Do you use either strategy yourself or are you like kind of making your own hybrid type situation as well? Like, do you have, because like you're, you know, you're six months into it. I imagine you're kind of like testing and iterating and like taking a lot of data in to develop your own strategy for success. I'm just curious, does it, does it emulate the YC strategy or have you found a different route through your own research? We're considered a small fund. I have less than 250 million assets under management. Um, and the result of that is the models pretty clearly show that it is the more effective strategy to be able to invest selectively. So let's say that 25 company approach and be evangelistic about them. Carry them through as far as you can, give them all the support that you can offer and ultimately get really lucky. That's hard to raise a lot of capital with the philosophy of, look, we don't really know what we're doing. We're just guessing. So instead, we, we say, look, we have a track record. We know what we're doing and we're going to, and we're going to make these 25 companies great. Um, once you're in a growth stage investor, so that's series, some series A, mostly series B, C, D, you are ultimately doing much larger checks than we are capable of writing and need more and more of them will succeed as a result of being at that later stage on a percentage basis. Many of them have found product market fit. Many of them have teams that are capable and ready to scale. Whereas at the early stage, you're still really proving out your idea and many companies sell at that stage. Makes sense. The, are, are there particular industries or a subset of industries that you're drilling in on and trying to be like the niche type person on? I definitely have this philosophy of great companies should be able to come from anywhere. And that's even more true at the early stage because companies haven't yet migrated to Silicon Valleys of the world. So we look everywhere for innovative companies and we try to be as open as possible to whatever form that may take. So that means investing in companies that we think we can support, but also have 
an impact on the world in a positive manner. So we look specifically for technology companies that um, ideally have a clear road to product market fit if they haven't yet achieved it already and have a product that's ready for commercialization. Though we do like to support the hard sciences of problems. So think quantum computer technology, think unstructured data search. Um, these are difficult problems to solve, but when they are solved, they're solving a big problem and ideally solving it in a efficient, effective way. Is there any downside? Because I think one of the benefits that the YC has, and I'll, I'll just keep most people know you YC, so I'll keep using them as an analogy. The like one of the one of the big things that they have is that that, that alumni network. After like as the company kind of gets shepherded through, there's so many people that can support them. If is there any like downside to not picking aerospace and like being like the aerospace people and then being open to other sides and then having so many alumni within that space, their companies while you're being zealot zealot like to them will have a higher chance of being successful because there's so many people through the pipeline that can help them get from uh, the seed that you start them at and then through those stages of it. Is there like if that makes sense? Is there is there downside for being a little bit more generalist versus being specific and then being a little bit of generalist? Because the way I understood it, it was like you can take it from anywhere. We we do have some criterion, but for the most part, the we look for like people who are actually making a difference and that have done the research to know that they have a market fit. I think was the criterion that you said. So I'm just curious: is there is there any like trade off in not being like niche specific, like aerospace or? Uh, biotech and then in, in the sense of not having those alumni and then long-term structures as you you become more zealot like over the years so from a fun perspective it is incredibly difficult to be specific there's only a few companies every year that will ultimately amount to being a billion dollar company not to mention a many billion dollar company eventually and so limiting yourself as a fund is often harmful to your overall success. Now, with that said, there have been a number of funds historically that do very well with their specificity, especially in more difficult areas. A fund that comes to mind is Minive Mobility, which does AI, I'm sorry, uh, automated vehicles and the, and the auxiliary technologies around automated vehicles. And they do very well in the support of companies that do their niche of, of technology. With that said, I think there aren't that many companies, funds that are able to make returns for their LPs in a way that using that methodology. You're in a state where you can kind of shepherd through a lot of these companies. And from a, from a fund standpoint, you do want to make a return. Is there ever enough? Like, if you if you have three billion in the pocket, do you then you know do you have like an if then statement? Like, if you reach certain marker, you do something else, or is this is this what you're going to be doing for the for foreseeable future, no matter how much money you make? I, I do plan on doing this for a very long time. I mean, helping companies grow is really what I'm passionate about. I like I like engineering. I like physics. I like sciences generally. But what I also like is being a generalist. I, I like being able to steward companies 
and individuals through the process of creating a startup and being able to be so close to technology and uh, sciences is really what drives me. So not being, not having to be an expert in anything like I think many founders are obligated to do puts me in a very good position as an investor. It's become sort of like smart money. Like I think there's, there's categorically, there's like two types of resources a, a startup can get, like where it's just money in the bank to develop whatever they're doing. And then a strategic investor, I, it seems like you want to be more of the latter versus the former, if I'm, if I'm reading you right. Well, frankly, I think you'll find very few people who claim to be dumb money. Uh, <laughs> I guess but, that's fair. But, but yeah, I, I think that... I, I think that we work very hard to form a, a team that can help our companies grow, give them advice when they want it, and be good investors to our to our portfolio companies, as well as other companies that um, we ultimately don't invest in. If if somebody goes onto our website, fills out our form, we try to give everybody some feedback, just a, just as a courtesy, if nothing else, because we think that that's what a a good investor in this community should be doing. I, I message a lot of VCs just <laughs> for the this, the podcast and just in general because I ask a lot of questions of people. M- most of them don't make it onto the podcast because some of the questions are really esoteric, as you've kind of noted and probably noted in this conversation. Uh, I, the ones that seem to do very well, from what I'm able to tell, are the ones that do do have an aspect of building a community. Like I, I mentioned, Y Combinator, but there's Indie Bio, Rebel Bio. You know, there's there's the ones that I found to be very community-driven, seem to be doing very well. So I wonder if that's like a criterion for success. Like being like, there's it reminds me, I think the, there's like an analogy to this. There's there's this documentary where they're called Warrior Apes. So in this documentary, there's like the the, the monkeys, wherever they're called, I'm, someone's going to make fun of me, I'm not using the right term. They, ha- they had like large numbers. Normally they'd have groups of 30, they had 200, you know, huge. And so... The people on the top, there's like two, like there's like one, everyone knew their pecking order, like one, two, three, if you, were, you knew you were, you were 24 or 27. And so there was two people in the, in the you know, two and three. One of them was like really aggressive and aggro and very much about himself and very, you know, aggressive type person. The other one was very working together. You know, he built bonds, social connections, grooming, you know, however those, those apes did it. And when they eventually kicked out the top guy, the, the strong one, he became leader, but no one wanted to follow him. Because he didn't know how to develop a community. And so even though he was the strongest guy, the social one got all of his friends together and they beat him up so much that they never saw him again. And so he was the new alpha or whatever that term was for them. So that's kind of how I view a lot of our social structures as humans. Is If, if, if you look closely, people that are very aggressive tend to, t- tend to be out out successed or wherever the term would be by the people who know how to develop a community around them. Like you can be... You can be successful for a time until your your skills start slacking. I think I think that's even what I would say in the principles book by uh, Ray Dalio. Like in the beginning, yeah, he was very like he's very skill driven, and even people said like, "Hey, you're kind of a dick. You don't know how to build a community." And so he had that that failure, and then when he came back, he learned how to develop a community, and then they started rising and rising and rising. And so I suppose I'm I'm wondering if you've ever noticed that parallel as well within the VC world as someone who can kind of see behind the curtain a little bit. If you've noticed that people who develop communities around themselves and give those types of feedback like th- that you try to do and, and your fund tries to, tries to do, if they tend to have a higher propensity for success versus the funds that are more 
I want to make our dollar value like they're very like very much down to counting pennies. So I think what we're sort of getting at is that a lot of the success of a VC at any scale is um, your ability to attract extraordinary people and extraordinary companies. Um, and a, a lot of that, I think, as you pointed out, do, is does come from being able to build, if not a community, then at least a reputation of support and uh, ultimately success around creating companies. So a large VC, I think Sequoia, certainly has done this where they have invested, they've been around for so long and invested so successfully that they get really great people coming to them looking for their support and their advice, regardless of maybe their ability to actually return value to any one of their particular funds. I think they absolutely have an advantage over a fund that isn't able to build a community of support and a community of innovation around them like we're uh, similarly like we're trying to do. One of the questions that we will ask in in our interviews uh with with companies is what's driving you? What is the motivating factor for building a company? And we're we're very open with saying I'm not as interested in supporting a company whose sole purpose is just to make money because building a company is so difficult that you need to have the passion behind it to actually follow through. And so we similarly view it as we need to have the passion for helping companies more than we need to have the passion for gaining incremental dollars because it's really hard. Uh, I was watching this on listening. There's like a podcast where people pitch themselves. It's like a mini Shark Tank. Uh, I think it's called Sell It, Pitch It. I think, no, it's called Pitch. And there was a person who was pitching something. I don't want to name it because I'm kind of be, I'm going to be disparaging in a second. And they, the people perceived it as if they were talking passionately about their idea, but nothing about what they said seemed like they were passionate about it at all. They talked about, and I think it's because they were talking to investors. Maybe they wanted to put the business side, oh, we can be acquired even before we have something ready, blah, blah, blah. And I, like they were like, oh, you're so passionate. I, you know, I like you, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just thinking, they did not sound passionate at all. Like, how do you, how do you suss out people that maybe say the right things versus the people? Is it just a qualitative thing? Can you can you tell by their mannerisms when they get excited, or is it is it like a, a like to? I think passion is one of those things that everyone gets passion, like when it's real. And yeah, in this thing, maybe I just wasn't firing on the right cylinders that day. But this, they did not seem passionate. It seemed like they were looking for a cash cow type situation, and so. I'll link it to you later, but it, yeah, how do you, as someone that uses passion so strongly as one of the guiding principles of finding the right people, how do you know if you're dealing with someone who's truly passionate about something or verse, versus just maybe interested or a psychopath, I suppose, but I, I, that's, that's a rare person. So like, I'm like not counting them. It, passion and drive are certainly some of the most difficult things to suss out of individuals and founding teams. And just to clarify, I don't think that every member of the team has to be passionate. I think somebody needs to be passionate because somebody needs to be the evangelist for the company. And I think that generally should be the person who's in charge. 
with this said, it's a difficult problem to to identify people who really have the drive to to attack a problem and to solve it no matter what obstacles may, they may face. But I do think it is one of those attributes that is important enough that it's worth individually finding out for each company. And so that may, be, may mean taking people out of, the, out of the office for an interview or getting them into their own environment and seeing how they interact with their staff when they're actually tackling a problem. Um, this is something that I like to do if I'm if I have the opportunity to, but it is but it is certainly something that's that can be difficult, but in some ways it can be difficult. But there is an expectation that it should be obvious by many people. So I think this is one of the things that I, I really wanted to touch on, not just specifically what you're saying, but this idea that you're like a, a very like you're 20 years old. You did something pretty neat when you were 13. And you've been working since then to develop your, yourself in a very specific way because I, I think underlining that you're a very driven and passionate person. And yet you don't really come – like you're not – you don't come off like an ass. You know, like you're not like I did something neat. You know, like some people where they have one success and it and it's like the, the, the road is paved with gold. You know what I mean? And so I think that's one of the things that in our conversations I've got the sense that you're much more mellow. Not mellow but like you found a way to balance yourself. And so I'm curious, as one day I hope to, I think there's a great Abraham Lincoln quote, like any person can deal, any person can can deal with adversity. If you really want to test a person, give them success. And so I'm curious, how have you built, and I think this might be a, a network situation where you have people around you that'll like pop you in your face if you're being, <laughs> being obnoxious or something. But I'm just curious, like how have you structured your life? to not reward arrogance and instead it seems reward like being a humble person uh even in i think you would even say like you you take in everyone's information and then you make an informed decision from that which is it's i think it's hard to do a lot of times for people because they don't want to they don't want to be wrong i think in a lot of cases where i think i get the feeling that you like if you're wrong you'd be like oh sweet i get to learn something you know so I'm, i'm curious like how did you structure yourself to to be that way today and like how are you continue to structure yourself so you're going to be that way in the future. It is. I mean, it is one of those things that takes some active effort. It's true. I mean, I've been incredibly lucky. I was very lucky to come from the family that I did and to, you know, be given the opportunities that I was. And then taking that those those luxuries and then building off of that with initiative, I got incredibly lucky with my with my very first investment success. And so that doesn't mean there is no element of objective skill involved, but I think that it is incredibly important that every time you have a success to think very critically about whether it was how much of it was earned as opposed to how much of it was things just working out regardless of your input. And I, I try to do that analysis as often as possible. As you pointed out, it, I, I, I worked very actively to, to take as much information as possible in with, and without judgment, try to make sense of it in a way that is, obje- is as objectively true as can be. You're absolutely categorically correct on my approach towards being wrong. Um, I, I love 
learning, and I've always loved learning. I haven't always loved doing it in the academic sense, but the the pursuit of knowledge and the pursuit of excellence is absolutely something that that drives me, even if you never quite achieve everything that you're hoping for. It, I think that there's a lot about the journey that is valuable. There's, I think there's a first, I think it's called first order principle, first order reasoning, first principle of reasoning. I'll say it right one of these times where you, first principle reasoning. thank you. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk does it. And he other does. people do as well. But as someone, when people look into the future and they look at five years of the future and they imagine this is what I want to be like, this is what I want to do. There's also, what do I have to overcome? Right. And as you said, you've been, you've been lucky in a number of ways. And so it, 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 do you ever realize that you're in a situation where you could have anything you want if you work hard, you know, keep doing like more likely than not, like, you know, if there's a recession that really hits you hard, you know, like that's out of your hands. But like for the most part, the things that are in your hands, you have a, you have a great probability of continuing the success for the rest of your life. Does it, does it ever just like dawn on you that, that it's like up to you in the sense that like there's a sense of responsibility. Do you think, I, I've set myself up in a pretty well way due to luck and other things. And I look into the, the five years in the future and I see what are the things do I have to overcome? And while there are things you have to overcome, you realize that, that you can do a lot of things. Like I think maybe I'm, I'm thinking that describing this in the wrong way, but to me personally, I always think the more that is given to you, like the smarter you are, like whenever I see or hear of a really smart person, I think, Oh great. They can invent something. They can be more considerate. I, I meet someone who's really empathetic and, and can be a good listener. I think, great, someone's going to feel heard and it's going to make their day better. I, I hear about you, someone who's, you know, as, as I say, lucky, but at, at the same time skilled and, and wants to develop a future in a specific way. I imagine that there's a lot of responsibility for that. Maybe, I suspect maybe you, you think the same way and that's why I'm trying to like suss out like, what do you want to do? When, when, the, when you have an ocean in front of you, you can pick any direction and it's all equally valid, and you have the resources to do anything you want, how do you pick one over the other and know that what you're doing is more valuable than doing doing A is more valuable than doing B? Well, obviously, there's a few ways to approach this question. To start with, I think that nobody has an obligation to live their life in any particular way, and certainly not in any way that I think that they should be living their life. I think there's an enormous amount of smart people who, as you pointed out, won't have the opportunity to fully execute on that intelligence. And that's historically always been true. If Da Vinci was alive today, you know, and, and the, the, the world would look very, the world wouldn't look so different if Da Vinci was alive today. I think that there is, an important recognition of if you have the ability and the desire to do it, I think you shouldn't let other people stand in your way, but that's not always an option. And I recognize that. So it's one of those things that I would personally would like to help support if I can. I'd like to, I'd like to help as many smart people do whatever it is that they want it and have that effect and influence as many people as possible. Um, Personally, as to what I'm interested in doing, I want to instill the sort of inspiration that I personally get 
as you mentioned, watching one of SpaceX's launches on live stream. I, I tune in to almost everyone, and every time I am blown away by the amazing scientific advances that it took to get to this place, from the rocket technology to the internet streaming technology. And being able to be a part of those kind of inspirational advances to society is exactly what I want to continue to be a part of for a long time. Do you, do you see the future being like a Gene Roddenberry situation like Star Trek? Or do you see it more like, I don't know, what's the opposite of Gene Roddenberry? Like the evil corporation? <laughs> Hamilton? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems that you 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 tend to be more like the Gene Roddenberry post scarcity people working to develop themselves in the extreme of it. As like a summary, As opposed but that, to Mr. Robot Evil Corp. Yeah, well, I don't even know if that guy is real. You know, like <laughs> they've already shown that like everything, he, like a, a great deal of what we're seeing is distorted. Like he's not a, a, yeah. a he's not a, an accurate and honest narrator. Not in, not intentionally, just because he's mentally ill. So I don't I don't even think Evil Corp is an evil corp. I think he it's like that person on the side of the the street. Now I'm distracted, but he's like the guy on the side of the street that. Uh, Apologies. No, it's all good. I like going. We, we've been very technical. I should have like pe- transitioned over to like fun things a while ago, but the oh, I the he's like that guy on the side of the street that says the world is ending today. Like I don't know how, I don't know how accurate. I get the feeling that it's probably all in his head, and they've set it up to be a part of his head, so it wouldn't be that annoying to find out it is in his head. You know, like they've been. That's they, they're just basically real. They keep a spoiler for anyone who's listening. They keep finding people who are always in his head, right? And it's like, oh, this guy, this person was in his head. This person was in his head. It's like, why not buildings? Why not structures? Why not Evil Corp? I think he just wants to be a hero of his story, and he's probably in a padded cell somewhere. But <laughs> do you think... Do- that, that, that would be a little bit of a lost ending to me. I mean, like a loss of the TV show. A, a uh, cop-out, maybe. But I, I do see your point. <laughs> well, they weren't always in Purgatory and Lost. It was... Only, it was they the, the they weren't always in purgatory, but at the same time, not to some extent, nothing they did mattered because they were going to end up there anyway. That's why I think sometimes like heaven is kind of a like why if, if heaven exists, then what's your imperative to do interesting things now when you know that as as long as you ask for forgiveness, you could die any moment and be brought to an existence where you're already fully satisfied. But in, in Lost, I I watch these shows, so like, <laughs> but the um. I don't think it was a cop out. I didn't like the ending. I thought they could do something different with it, but I think, I think they had the ending, and they they basically said, "Hey, this is the future where everyone's dead and they're reconnecting." But but, but what do you mean? And, and um, it wasn't in their head. No 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 no. I I was just under the impression they were in purgatory for for the show. No no no. no. Because of the wreckage, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, the the last scene was the wreckage. Is that what made you feel that way? Yes. That wasn't supposed to be there. It confused a lot of people. The The TV network did it. it. That was not supposed to be there. A lot of people believe they were always dead because of that. No, it, it, it ends on, on Jack dying or, or them going off, which, I mean, naming a guy Christian Shepard, I mean, it's, <laughs> they were like being very yeah. on the nose the entire time. But yeah, they weren't dead the entire time. That's, But I, I hear that a lot. Like, I didn't. Interesting. I, I I misinterpreted that though. Yeah, well, that, that's the that's the network's fault. Like they were they like with that wreckage, it does it. It is like oh, 
Is this was this all in their head? But yeah, question that always bugs me. Okay, so in a universe, so in a universe that's cre- that's created by God, so like in a Christian sense, like God exists, He makes the universe, right? In that order, like God exists, He decides to make the universe, universe exists. If you stop Him before He makes the universe, what exists in its place? And the thing that bugs me is I play video games, right? And if you die, you just go back to the previous level and you do it again. But if you t- if you took out the thing that makes it so you could even play a video game and re-level it, then there's no other version of existence that you can have. But that really bugs me. Like, if there, if, if a mechanism needs to happen for the universe to exist, and you take that mechanism away, in this sense, I use God because most people can conceptualize the idea of a, the... Yeah. Like, what would be here in its stead? Like, it would be nothing. But then, it's like a very... Well, no, nothing thing. would be here because we are in the universe. But, I mean, there... Is, does God live in some ether? Does God have a realm of existence? Um, I suppose that is a philosophical question one could ask. On top of that, maybe, where does this idea that there can only be one universe come from? Could something else exist in its stead being like another universe that God created you know, on day negative one? I, I suppose those are, those are other questions one could ask. I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm not a... Uh, theologian to answer it is, it's a question that bugs me i keep asking it to people because i keep trying to see if there's an answer but it's weird it's like if the mechanism for creating something doesn't exist then you have nothing but the concept of nothing is still a something in the way that we perceive i don't know i won't go down this line i'll have like i'm gonna stay up tonight thinking about it now all right but well, I, in our universe nothing is something so. but in the concept of like what nothing is it is still i think the truest sense of nothing is something that we can't con like have a concept for so like it's like infinity. I don't think we can consciously understand what infinity means. I think we use mathematical models to understand what it means. But I think if you, if a human actually sat down and tried thinking about what infinity was, what actually the absence of things were, I don't think we could do it. Because I think our, our the way our brains work, we're designed to think of something, not no nothing. So that, yeah, I'm not going anywhere with this. Other than the idea. I completely agree, though. I mean, it is, the concept of zero is one of the newest mathematical fundamental mathematical concepts uh, to be created and it took us a very long time from the creation of counting to ultimately arrive at the concept of of nothing it's weird it's the there's a neil degrasse tyson interview where someone asked him neil what what bothers you like what like like keeps you up at night and i I, i'm gonna ask you that question at the end but the he answered, there are things in this universe that we'll never see because we exist in this time period versus any other time period. There will be a time in our future where the universes in the sky will not be there because they've expanded. Like we'll have our local group, but for the most part, everything will go away and no one will have those stars anymore. The, that, those other galaxies, I mean to say, not universes. And so he, he, he postulates what other amazing things in the cosmos existed but that we'll never know because they went to the outer bounds of what we can see. And it's kind of a weird thing, but it's true. Like, it's a weird, like keeps you up at night. Is there anything that keeps you up at night like that? So that's one of those things that's always been true. And again, for me personally, I try and I'm ultimately pretty successful at not, not worrying too much about questions that, don't don't serve tangible merits. I, I certainly think about them, but they but they don't uh, they don't keep me up. Someone someone's knocking on your door. 
might be a, a ruffian to mirage you. <laughs> That's the only thing uh, that'd keep you up. That, that that would certainly keep me up. Aside from that, no, I sleep pretty comfortably. I I think that I think that the world is ultimately going in a good direction that we have the power to influence, and so I think that there are enough good people trying to do the right thing that we're all going to be okay. And I'm I sleep pretty well. That's good to know. I kind of see the world as like a really tall person on stilts, and the idea that and the idea that if I think there was a, a study that went out where if you if you interrupt the world's food supply, like if you stop the ports and what have you for three days, you'd, you'd create worldwide famine. And if you if it lasted long enough, we to the point where we had like there was like things were destroyed that we wouldn't be able to build up back to where we are today because the petroleum that we use to basically subsidize our development isn't as easily easy to get which is really weird like three days that's basically what they were saying like we you get three days to fix a problem before we go back to like the industrial era and then we don't really get to come back so i think of us like we're at like a very we're at a very critical moment i think like we have globe we have global warming we got um antibiotic resistance and so i, I feel like we're like a really tall person on stilts but still like you know i think good people working on them I don't. I don't at all want to say that I think there aren't problems that we're going to face over the next fifty years. I think there's, in fact, a lot of massive problems that we're going to face, and that doesn't mean life might not get worse for a little while. But I think technology and innovation will ultimately push us past the point of reliance on gasoline or even our reliance on the earth. I like this weird debate in college where people. I asked people if we're the only life in the universe. I just, I don't, and I think the math kind of, like, it, it makes sense that we're probably not, but let's say we're the only life in the universe. Would you think that it'd be an imperative for our species to spread life? Like, it's like a mission we take on for ourselves to shepherd and, and spread it throughout the stars. And for the most part, people said no. And it was like, so if you're like, you're, if you're the only candle in the darkness, you don't think you should light more fires? And it's like, I don't know, but that's a different question. I know we wanted to talk about space, so I think maybe this would be a good transition because you wanted to. I think you had some an interesting take on Blue Origin, and I don't know that much about Blue Origin. I do know a lot about SpaceX, and I'm doing a, a bunch of series on uh, other space companies, which people who turn in, they probably will like that. But uh, what was the Blue Origin thing that you wanted to mention? What was the Blue Origin thing I wanted to mention? I have in front of me. I might mention Blue Origin's rocket technology. <laughs> so I shouldn't really like that. <laughs> um... Or a startup that pitched you, but I, I wouldn't mention the name without you saying you wanted to talk about it. Oh yeah, sure. I, I'm happy to talk about them. Uh, I, I, like I said, I, I didn't, I haven't invested, and I don't necessarily plan on it. But I just think they're, they're kind of interesting to talk about. So Blue Origin, I think, just has a really interesting ability to come out of nothing and start showing progress. Um, I think they're very early on what could potentially be a exponential curve of their ability to create successful rocket launches. Now that's not that's not a a jab against SpaceX. In fact, I would suppose that SpaceX probably welcomes the competition um, based on their philosophies. But particularly Blue Origin aside from other um, rocket companies such as Rocket Lab um, has really interesting competitive technology to SpaceX. 
Um, recently, they announced that they are doing a um, partnership with ULA to sell their rockets to the um, to the Vulcan series of uh, spacecraft. And uh, in 2020, the first uh, launches of New Glenn should be coming out. And the idea that Blue Origin is not a, at all a competitor, I think, will pretty quickly be dispelled. Uh, and so, so I'm excited for the uh, for for the second generation of the space regs to continue. That's actually one of the things that I'm trying to get really smart people on the podcast to talk about. In China, they are dumping, not even dumping. It's it's very smart what they're doing. They're putting trillions of dollars into developing the new Silk Road, like through building ports. They're they're doing like intense investing from from China to Greece, and. And it's very purposeful. They're very purposeful in what they're doing. And then you look at America and then the West, and we don't really have anything purposeful like that. And yet the form of our, our economy, like capitalism, is, is kind of creating a platinum highway, like using space technology, like new, um, Blue Origin, uh, BF, SpaceX, etc., are creating like a platinum highway where our version of the Silk Road, which is purposeful in the sense that people are like building these technologies that on purpose, but not purposeful in the sense that, like, as a society, we're not really developing a structure to ensure that these things happen. Besides, like, a few government grants for the most part, I don't, I don't think like we're drastically subsidizing it to the tune of trillions of dollars to make sure it happens. The, but maybe I'm, I'm wrong on that. But that is like it's a very interesting topic on the idea that this platinum highway now, Blue Origin. I don't know that much about them, their technology specifically. I, I know a lot about the the BF. The, the Falcon yeah, stuff. Falcon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just, I always keep thinking the big fucking ro- rocket, which is what they mean yeah. to say. And then, uh, which is funny. The, which I, I would imagine they would have the edge. I don't think it, I don't think it'll be like a, a big brother and a little brother, but I think it'll be like, like a full glass of water and then like a two third cup. <laughs> like I said, I make really weird analogies. I think their technologies will be impressive. They'll be ca- caught up. But I think, I think SpaceX has a, I think other than, um, the people who are doing uh, Vulcan, I think they'll be very competitive with with SpaceX once they get get it up and running. But I think SpaceX has like a lot of that iterative approach, and they have the right design architecture. Where I think even the the Falcon Nine went from like it developed so so rapidly and increased the capabilities that it basically had the abilities of a Falcon Heavy. And so when they finally mm-hmm. got to the time of the Falcon Heavy, it's like this meets such a niche market that it. It's, they're not even really developing it. Now they're jumping up to the next level. So I feel like the the infrastructure for what they're developing, I think, will keep them in the lead. But I, I do agree with you. I don't think it's going to be like a blowout. I definitely don't think that that's what Elon or any other team there wants. I think they both have very large ambitions, and I sincerely hope that they both achieve them. And I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Talking about, talking about from a Platinum Highway situation, is there, do you think there's anything we could be doing to foster more blue origins or more tiny micro satellite company that I'm not naming it since you didn't name it <laughs> that, uh, to like build out this type of highway. Cause it's not, it's not necessarily purposeful, but at the same time, it's like an individual thing where I think China is doing it as a collective, which I think is going to, it will give them the edge. Like they're definitely going to win on that, on that mark. Cause they've been hitting all their marks so far. I will just briefly mention that Japan is also has plans to attempt to build a uh, space elevator. So there, no, no one's out of the running yet. 
uh, with that said, uh, I do think more pri- uh, public funding could go to to NASA and to and to private space companies. I think that would be a benefit, at least to this space. Naturally, I think that's one of the major advantages of the way that China is set up with respect to their ability to declare a national goal and and back it as fully as possible. That's obviously maybe one of their few advantages of their system, but it is one of them. I think that there is, as you pointed out, enough interest in the space to take us through this stage of development. And once we get to cheap, sustained, initially low Earth orbit, and then into potentially the moon and to Mars, we will see more ability of private citizens to find ways to innovate in in space. Is there any questions in the VC world, any problems you're having? Like since you're six months in, anything mm-hmm. that you're getting stuck on that we could, I don't know, either spitball together or like someone in the who's listening could help out with? I think every industry has the potential to be innovative. And that includes mine. Although I think the innovation within venture capital is exceedingly rare. And so to the extent anybody has new ideas with respect to different ways of funding people or different people who need the funding, or different ways to go about finding brilliant people with brilliant ideas. I have some ideas myself, but I think there's always room for more innovation in every space, but mine included. Well, isn't, didn't you have some, not counter ideas, but like different ideas on how to build a company well? I think that was one of our preamble discussions that you had some like, maybe divergence is the right word, like different than how most people would build a company. If I remember correctly, and if so, what are those those different ways? I disagree. I'm, a, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't. Th- I don't think my ideas are particularly unique. I, I'm not. I personally sometimes forget that the goal isn't to be unique; it's to do better, um, or to do well, for that matter. To follow my own philosophy, and so. There's a lot of things that people would advise you that I think is right. I think it is really important to have passion for what you're doing. I think it's really important to start a company that you are able to build a competency in. Um, but I also think it's important to do it for the right reason. And that might be just more about how people live their life than it is about driving economic value. Um, And I think the companies that do the best are ones that are formed and driven by a mission. This allows you to hire better. This allows you to retain people and customers. I think there's a lot of advantages to being mission-driven. And I think some of the very best companies do. Amazon being one of them, the new trillion dollar company. 
Yeah. Uh, would you ever run for office as like just like a complete like shot of, you know in a different direction? Like, would you ever become like a civil servant, like a governor or something like that? Are well, you I think I found yeah. out today I am not a good enough public speaker. Well, you're twenty. You got you got time. Everyone sucks when they're twenty. Like you're not Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great cheated. You look at all these people that were successful when they were young. Alexander the Great did barely anything. His father did everything. H- uh, Hannibal, you know, his his father built that entire thing. It was like already planned across the Alps. He just like took over. So, oh, you're a young man. So you can develop yourself. You can get better. You're not bad. You're not bad at public speaking. You just think before you say something. That's smart. That's like ninety percent of being smart. You just think before you say something. I think maybe we disagree about that one. All right, let's let's dig into it. We found some, but I mean, okay. think about it. If you ever notice the people, like how do how does how do the public, how does the average Joe differentiate mm-hmm. between a, a stupid person and a smart person? Delayed gratification. So if you can, if I say something to you and you can delay the gratification of a response because it feels good to have a say on something, and and then make sure that that's the correct response and then hit it in a strategic way then you're probably smart because you just did like five things that most people would consider smart. I think most people gauge intelligence based on one's proclivity to sesquipedalianism or to one's complexity. What? So don't make up words. What does that word mean? Psycho blah, blah, blah. What is that? Uh, It's uh, sesquipedalianism. Somebody likes to use long words. Why would you use that word? The perfect words, it's the perfect word to describe the problem with gauging intelligence based off of the ability to use complex words. And my second point was going to be to use complex ideas. Sir, what are complex ideas? I'm sure there is. I'm sorry. <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry. For- it took me personally. This was this was a, a learning experience for me because I was somebody for a while who enjoyed a large vocabulary, but it occurred to me at some point that sharing the information was far more important than conveying some semblance of intelligence. Um, I think for one, intelligence is largely overrated. Um, I think really great innovations come out of um, not always the brightest minds. Um, and that's that's great, in fact, because that means there's hope for me, too. There's a prevalence of do you actually know what you're talking about? Do you know how to analyze something as opposed to do you have a great ability to memorize something. And I think that distinction is sometimes difficult for the layman to un- to uncover, at least on first mention. Yeah, but aren't you talking about something else? In the sense that I, I, all, all I said was that for the most part, 90% of intelligence is knowing when to speak. Like, when, like how to delay that gratification. And there's even been Yale studies where like they'll give a kid like a marshmallow and it's like, hey, if you don't eat this, you get another marshmallow. And they found that yeah. delay gratification is like the key metric for whether or not you'll be successful. So I'm just, I guess I'm just drawing a parallel between success and intelligence. And I, I don't think intelligent is knowing things. I think intelligent is yeah. how to apply things. 
So, and in, in that regard, it is all delayed gratification, and then when to when to say things, which means I am right. <laughs> <laughs> I, po- I I apologize if I if I came off as if I was disagreeing with you there. I I I agree. I think that there is a. I think there I think there is a correlation, if not causation, of being willing and able to delay delay your success, delay your gratification for the ultimate positive outcome. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we're back on the same page. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, uh, we are on the same page again. We'll find it. What What do you suck at? Like, what's something? So you've had some success. You have things going your way. You're 20 years old. You got six more years than me, plus however long your longevity is going to be since I'm six years older than you. And if we assume a normal, oh, it's really weird. We're going to live a very long time. Every, I'm talking to a lot of longevity people and they're like, yeah, even if we, even if we go by the normal trends of like how our ages are, the average age is increasing by the time we're 70, the average age is going to be like 90. So like, we're probably going to be averaging 90 years old. I don't know how that relates to health span, but at the same time, there's a lot of really interesting companies. One of them I've talked to who's doing NAD plus rejuvenation for lack of a better term and they're seeing like some really crazy stuff so we're probably gonna be living a very long time i don't know, it's just i think you're in a, like a, i think you're just in a really weird position and, and that and it very it's like it's interesting to me because you could you could do anything like you could become president you have enough i mean you keep building yourself for a couple more years you could probably fund the thing yourself i think donald trump only put in like two to three million to run his race so i mean you know, just save up, you know, put pocket change, then take a percentage off of each company you invest in. And uh, mm-hmm. you could be president one day if you wanted. I don't I don't think there's really any reason to be president. I don't think it's all that glamorous, but, you know, you can do anything. Does the weight of that ever bug you? Does the weight of that you could do anything? So, like, and, and to some extent, like, if I if I don't do anything, it's like, oh, okay, I, I grew up on a farm. And I put myself through college. Like, I mean, you know, like, I just go back to being a farmer, right? Like, you know, who cares? There's nothing wrong with being a farmer, but you know what I'm saying. But you, if you don't succeed, then your entire family makes fun of you. I, I, don't, I don't know, but you know what I mean? Like, does the weight of the idea that you've been lucky a little bit, and if you, like, dive bomb straight into the ground, it'll really suck. Does that, like, I don't want to give you an existential crisis, but at the same time, did you ever think about no. this? Uh, I, I do a bit. I, I, I kind of pride myself in trying to think about every uh, angle to things. I am. I want to. I want to clarify that I think I'm very lucky, not not just a little bit, but I am aware that there is a paradox of choice that I'm faced with, with respect to my ability to pursue my interests, and I try to take that opportunity and mold it into what I think could be the same opportunity for a number of other people by creating and helping foster companies that will ultimately inspire other people to pursue what they want to do um, eventually. I was talking to someone recently and I pot, I said that if you do something good, I think society should reward you as a, and I gave the example of if, if you're a Nobel prize winner and you cured a type of cancer, right? I said, you should probably never get speeding tickets. You know, like society says you saved millions of people. You don't get, you don't get speeding tickets. You can go as fast as you want me. The person was like, well, you know, it's like unfair. It's just, you know, it's unsafe, what have you. It's like, if you gave me that, I wouldn't speed. But if I wanted to, it's a nice perk. So do you feel like people 
who achieve on a merit-based level something that does something good for society, like a curing a type of cancer or extending life, or maybe you went into, like you saved like a hundred thousand orphans from a penguin attack. I don't know. Like whatever you did, society's like, you know what? You get like, you get this special badge and you don't have parking tickets, you know, something like that. Do you think there's, do you think society should reward people in, in, in giving perks like that? Cause apparently that's like a controversial thing. Like people don't think that I think they should. I don't think they should. I think there's a very good reason for giving people speeding tickets and it's so that the roads are ultimately safer for everyone. I think that's what capitalism is as a system. It is rewarding people for their, for their merit, for their hard work. I don't think it is necessarily always successful in that way, but I think it's pretty good. Um, I think capitalism is a lot better than a lot of other systems with respect to being able to reward people for the work that they put in. And so I think I think that most people are pretty fairly compensated. All right. Well, just for the record, speeding tickets is an example. Like there's this sure. episode of there's this episode of Simpsons. Where I guess I, if I get this idea from Simpsons, it's probably not a very good idea. But like Homer went into jail for a while, and they said, "So you can either steal a car, or you can like punch the police officer in the face." And so he punched the police officer. As like, <laughs> so I don't know. I, I always just think like, how can we encourage people to do good things? And it's like, oh, you can have like a park. You, you don't get parking tickets, but yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a weird thing. No one agrees with me. You're like, no. <laughs> anyone I've said that to, everyone's like, nah. There's a good reason we have speeding tickets. It's like, yeah, I don't know, the guy cured cancer or the lady. I think there's a lot of injustice in the world. I don't think that we need to go around creating systems to create more. Essentially, um, I would I would probably support actions going the other way to make rules more absolute, as opposed to. Um, subjective on the premise of whether somebody is friendly with the police officer who pulls you over. I don't know. That's where I, that's where I stand. I think people should be rewarded, but it's just, I see the, I see the other side of it, right? Like you don't want to be unfair. And if the sis, if, if the, it's like when people, it's like when people try and stop Nazis from saying like having the rallies and they're like, mm-hmm. Oh, they shouldn't be allowed to speak. It's like the idea that we allow them to speak ensures that they will never be able to attack you again because they mm-hmm. use the loophole of some people can be censored to eventually encompass an entire group of people that they didn't like. And I also just realized that anyways, but like, so like <laughs> I realized that maybe Nazis wasn't the best example. Yeah, it's fair, but I, I do see your point. Yeah. It's like, uh, so I see like maybe making exceptions like that will allow other injustice to happen, but I don't know to wrap this up. So you have a, a new fund, like six months into it, hopefully 10 years from now, you'll have the same fund. I don't know how funds work, but well, I know the fund that like keeps re-raising. So it's like different versions of the fund. So I think, yeah. I don't know how that works. Or why, why do they do so, that? So the structure of the, let's call it the typical venture fund and angel fund is a 10 to 14 year horizon 
static fund, which means they do an initial raise of their capital, sometimes a secondary raise sometime later. But essentially, however much they raise at the beginning is how much they have to invest. And once they deploy that capital after three or four years, they need to raise a new fund so that they can continue to invest more. So you are ultimately investing out of a, a, in a subsequent fund a few years down the road. There are funds that exist that have a hedge fund structure where you're able to essentially buy in at a later point. But there are some problems with um, uh, essentially there's something called mark-to-market accounting, which is essentially where you get to decide the book value of a non-liquid asset. And that is a subjective measure largely because there aren't funding rounds as often as there are in a public market where there's essentially a funding round every time a transaction occurs. So it is difficult to do that structure in a way that most LPs can get behind. But I do see a lot of merit to coming up with maybe a better structure around continuous funding. Is there any way for people who have been listening to you, is there like a a website or like a Twitter? I don't know. Social media is like something I'm new at. I don't, I don't even have an Instagram. <laughs> yeah. I need to get on that. Uh-huh. Um, we are on social media. I need to get better at using it personally. But you, most, most notably, you can find us at upheavalinvestments.com. And uh, if you have a idea that you want to shoot to us, we have an email on the contact page and as well as a form that uh, if you fill out our form, it's only four or five questions. We will try to get back to you within a few days with some feedback, regardless of if we are interested in pursuing your idea further. Um, which, so which is really to, nice. Yeah. A lot of people don't do that. We try to make the bar for you know contacting us abs- as absolutely low as possible so that we don't alienate anyone and to f- help foster you know the the sort of people that we want, which is really just anyone with uh, the passion to start a company. Oh, excellent. And I hope, I hope people reach out to you. Like generally, I, I, especially in the Chicago area, I think Chicago definitely needs to like raise it up. I was talking to people in New York and they were like, uh, New York needs to raise it. But I think Chicago, I, I, I see Chicago as having a great deal of potential. I don't, I don't see like any integration. I think it's getting a little, maybe, maybe we, you know, that's something that we could talk about real quick, but even though we're going pretty long on this, but, I, I, I think Chicago could be really great when it comes to, to like having hubs to for biotech and space and all. If if they don't already have or are developing them, they just always seem kind of small and dis. They're not integrated in a way. Like if I sent one email, I think of this like how many cli- how many how many clicks through would I have to go through to find a place to develop whatever I'd want to develop? I don't think it's easy to find in Chicago. Where I think in San Francisco. I think if you were to send like two emails, you'd find like someone would respond to you and help you find it where I've personally probably sent like maybe let's say like 25 emails to people in Chicago specifically like tailored to them. And I'll get like one in 10 as a response. But in San Francisco, I'll get nine out of 10 response like really quickly. In Boston, I'll get like eight out of 10. So I don't know what it's about Chicago, but I, I really I think maybe it's an integration thing, but I don't know how we can make it better. So there's kind of two angles here. The first is from the company's perspective, which is I think there's a great community in Chicago for starting a company. Um, there's a number of incubators that are very well regarded. Um, 1871 is a major one that comes to mind. And they have a great community of startups and advisors and are always ready to help people found their company regardless of the space that you're in. On the other 
And from the venture perspective, um, I think the venture community has historically in Chicago been a close-knit community. I think there are a couple of new funds that are around with the intent to try to open that up. But you'll, you will find there are some great funds that do some very specific investing in the Midwest and in certain areas, such as in biotech um, or in hardware, that if you do reach out to filling their niche, they will be great partners for you. Chicago has absolutely been a one of the fastest growing communities of startups and engineering talent um, for a while now. And I'm pretty proud to be a part of this community in Chicago and at large in the venture space. Well, uh, Peter Thiel made a comment a few years ago, I think, where he said, 60% of my investment goes into real estate. Like when he invests in a company out in Silicon Valley, because the real estate is so expensive. Chicago isn't that expensive. Like it's fair, like compared to like Boston or the Bay Area, it's like you, you can kind of live like a king for what you pay out in the Bay Area. Like you'd have like your own like cul-de-sac or something. But yeah, I want to, you, you've got, you give me a lot of your time. So I want to thank you for coming on today and you'll be like one of the first people on YouTube. So hopefully people like this. And if they don't, I just won't do it anymore. I'll just make the podcast the audio format. But I think having the visual aid of being able to see your smiling face is nice. And that was Riley, principal and founder of Upheaval Investments. You can check them out at upheavalinvestments.com. And in this episode, as a quick reminder, we got into what's it like being a wonderkin, how he did that, how we all can learn something from it and get involved in investing if you want to get into the VC world. So if you like this content, you hated this content, if you know you love this content, please let me know. You know, I want to make great stuff for you guys, and Riley would love the feedback as well. I'm assuming he did not tell me to say this, but he seems like the type of guy, especially from this episode, who really likes feedback. Other than that, I want to inform people before we go that there is a new way to show support for the podcast and to keep it advertisement free from now until forever, which is called Patreon. If you go to Patreon and look for Learning with Lowell, you'll see this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell was here, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends, please and thank you.